Hi guys, it's the worst eight movies ever, and can you believe it? It's 2020, it's a brand new year, it's a brand new decade. I hope you're all having a great time out there in this new year. So, you might have been wondering, Greg, where have the show's gone? Why haven't you done any shows for ages? And there are reasons for that, and I'm not going to go into them now. Uh, some of it's mental health related, some of it is that I wanted to try doing something different. And that's kind of what I did with the show that you're going to listen to now. So what I thought I would try and do is because my friends are my friends, and if you don't know us, then you might not necessarily know who Tom Dennett Cook is, or you might not necessarily know who the rest of my friends are who I have on the show. And what I thought I'd do, I thought it might be quite fun, is to do interviews with them. So you can find out their history, you can find out how I met Tom, you can find out things like um, where his interest in cult movies comes from, and yeah, I just thought it'd be a really, really fun idea. So what I've got for you now is one of two shows that I recorded very, very recently. The first one of these is with my friend Tom Dennett Cook, and I think it's really, really awesome. I think it's very, very enlightening. It's a very, very fun kind of 35 minutes. And then we're going to talk about Desperate Living, the John Waters film, which admittedly I hadn't seen that many John Waters films before the show, and um, it's definitely one of his best films. So I'm very, very happy that I not only got to watch it, I got to talk about it with Tom as well. So without further ado... This is my interview with Tom Dennett Cook, and then after that, the discussion of Desperate Living by John Waters. So, let's have a listen. have I got you on the show for now it's like Cannibal Holocaust Salo Salo Hills of Eyes yeah yeah Hills of Eyes Hills of Eyes uh, remake conversation Uh, The Holy Mountain yeah oh god yeah you can't forget The Holy Mountain brilliant Um, what else is that one of them? Beast in Heat. Beast in Heat. Oh, yeah. Beast yeah, in Heat. That's which has grown on me since we've done that podcast. You know how you said it? I hated it. <laughs> yeah, I remember when we did the, uh, on the Lamink configuration, we did Nazi exploitation yeah. stuff. Like, you said, oh, I hate this one. It's the worst one. And I was it's like, the no, worst it's really not. It's the worst one of the, yeah, anyway. And beggars can't be choosers, but Nazi exploitation no. all kind of shit. No. I mean, one thing I wanted to know, because... I mean, I've known you... How long have I known you for? Because we met at a party. We met at a party, yeah. It was for our mutual... Mutual friend. friend. Mark Smith. Mark Smith, for who? Who I've not actually seen for years. I haven't seen years, but... But uh, it's still a mutual friend. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it counts. Uh, That was a good few years ago, but then in between that and seeing you again was a a bigger gap. Yeah, yeah. So we met at a party. I remember we were talking about The Room, all the things. Because you had been to the Prince Charles... Yeah. to see the room with Tommy. It's like, oh, we love each other. Yeah. It's like, all that kind of that stuff. That makes it sound like I went with Tommy. It was like, <laughs> I went and he was doing his little introduction And Q&A you said thing. you met him, from what I remember. Yeah, you... yeah. That's when I was still um, pretending to be a journalist. Right. And I interviewed him and, and Greg Sestero yes. afterwards. 
Took a little photo. That was nice. Yeah, so that was reviews from the out room, uh, yeah. which is, again, how I kind of know you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, where did the reviews from the out room come from? Where did it kind of take you back? <laughs> to, to, uh, way, way I, back I, I machine. I can't remember. Um, I think it would be 10 years old this year. Wow. It started in 2009. And originally it was called That's a Bingo. <laughs> From uh, Inglorious Bastards because I oh, thought that was God. a really funny line. I'm glad I changed the name because that who remembers that line now? Mm. Um, and the uh, image was the face melting Nazi from Rangers of the Lost. Uh, oh. Not Rangers of the Lost. Yeah, Star. Rangers, yes, Rangers of the Lost. Star. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like Nazi heavy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I changed it because I needed something a bit more snappy. And you're gonna love this. So I was with uh, another friend. I don't know if you know Dave O'Gorman, our friend. Uh, yeah, I know him yeah, by yeah. the Gridlock Crew. Um, we were at a Limp Bizkit gig oh, no. in 2009 and I was running off I was like I wanted to call reviews from like like a, a 1950s kitschy type thing like reviews from Outer Space or something and he was like we're both Star Wars fans he was like what about reviews from Outer Rim and I was like no I was going to call it Outer Rim Reviews and he said no don't call it that call it Reviews from Outer Rim All right. so I kind of changed it around and Outer Rim for people who aren't Star Wars fans, is where all the shit planets are in Star Wars. It's kind of like the Wild West. So I thought, that's kind of cool, because I talk about shitty movies and sometimes mainstream movies that everyone hates, like Showgirls. So they're, they're kind of out of oh. rim movies, you know. It's interesting. The Showgirls, the tide is turning on Showgirls now. It is. There's it a is. documentary at the London Film Festival this year called You Don't Know Me. I saw that advertised. Yeah, yeah. which I was tempted to go to, but it was just not the kind of... The, the timings weren't really right for me. But yeah, no, you're, yeah, you're right. I mean, a film like that, it does seem to happen where it comes out, everyone says, oh, this is shit, this is shit. Yeah. And then over time, it gets a cult following. And I think that's the one thing that I know you most for is kind of you are the first person I've ever met who has a... F- passion for like cult cinema Mm -hmm. i would say now i mean in your opinion what is cult cinema how do you define that well that is that's the million dollar question that all cult cinema people try that's the alchemy of uh uh film studies Mm. uh for me what makes a film a cult film is the audience reception i know there's two schools of thought on cult cinema one is people try and make some kind of genre out of it (coughs) I would say that's impossible because, well, I'll probably divulge into that in a second. And then the other is reception. So a film like Cannibal Holocaust has a massive cult following. Mm. Star Wars has a massive cult following. Are these two films in any way similar? No. And that's (laughs) why I don't go for the genre route. I know companies like Arrow will try and sell something as a cult film because it's Grindhouse or Exploitation. A lot of those films are cult. But not all of them are. And the best examples being The Hills of Eyes compared to The Hills of Eyes 2. Yeah. That Arrow is now trying to sell as if it's the same thing. And the reception has been a bit choppy. People yeah. are kind of like, no, Hills of Eyes 2 is not a cult movie. So I would say it's all about... And when I say reception, what I mean is the audience are more invested in it than your average cinema goer. A Cannibal Holocaust fan will go to a special midnight screening with the director mm. and get his Japanese 1980 poster signed. You don't get that with casual fans. And that's what makes no. it a cult. And same with Star Wars fans. People get dressed up and invest in lightsabers. Yeah. And that's what makes it a cult movie is the cult fan. So you're, are you a cult fan then in that case? Kind of. I mean, I, I've thought about this before. I mean, you, you know way more about cult 
films than I do, or you you seem to be more into Thanks. individual genres that like you know you you're, you're down the rabbit hole when it comes to yeah Italian horror films. I, I'm basically a massive Italian horror movie fan, and like I kind of yeah you're right. I kind of it's not. It, I get what you mean about individual films, mm-hmm. but they kind of like are like the gateway drug into that type <laughs> of genre cinema. I suppose like if you. I don't know, if you watch Kill Bill and then you're like, oh, I like this, yeah. and then you'll start watching like lots of martial arts movies mm-hmm. and then you'll go down that rabbit hole. That's not something I've done yet because that doesn't really appeal to me, but it's like when I saw, I don't know, like Suspiria and then it was like, oh, I really like this, and then, yeah, I watched fuckloads of Italian films kind of from there. Yeah. I suppose my approach to cult cinema has <laughs> always been, when I when I look at all my interests, I'm kind of essentially a history buff well buff's probably a too nice a term history nerd i'm a history nerd and whenever i get into something i always try and understand the background and look into it so when i go into some cult films i then went oh basically did what you did with uh, what you were saying with kill bill when i look at cult cinema i wouldn't say necessarily i'm a big fan of certain genres but I wanted to know about them. So Nazi exploitation, perfect example. Terrible genre. <laughs> Very rarely is there any decent one. But because yeah. I'm a, a fan of cinema, and then I'm a fan of World War II movies, and I'm a fan of exploitation, I naturally discovered this thing. So it's more like I st- a study interest. So with horror, I kind of I've got black loads of black exploitation horror now. Mm. None of them are any good, really, apart from <laughs> the Blackula films. But because I have this sort of like interest in, I want to, I want to know all, I want to know the subcategories, and I want to look into them. Whether I like them or not, it's not really the point. So, I, am I a fan of these films? Not always, but I do like collecting them and knowing their place in the history of cult cinema or underground cinema. Yeah, does I mean, that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get where you come from. I mean, though, although you have more Nazi exploitation, movies a little bit more. <laughs> than- <laughs> most people like i said that's the history thing coming in and then just and nazi stuff is all over the shop you know you get everything from <laughs> bed knobs and broomsticks to ilsa she wolf vss in my dvd collection yeah oh i've seen your dvd collection <laughs> it's well no it's cool I, i'd say it's a very cool dvd collection it's a, a definitely a spectrum of kind of like all the stuff that you're into yeah like 80s comedy horror um cult movies uh stuff like david lynch yeah and kind of yeah all that kind of stuff again it's kind of like i like to have a little sort of finger in every pie it's a smorgasbord yeah exactly word. you yeah. wouldn't yeah apart from the nazi stuff there isn't anything that's <laughs> one massive thing it's a little bit of everything so that if somebody came around and said i've i've never seen a film before i could be like well here's an example of cinema i like to have a little bit of everything you know <laughs> and some extra Nazi exploitation. And uh, yeah, they would have a very well. disproportionate view of <laughs> what, what the fuck have you got all these movies about the Nazis of scantily clad women on the cover. Oh dear. I'm really jealous of you because oh. you did <laughs> film studies at university, is that yes, right? Yeah. And what did you do your dissertation on? I remember you saying ages ago, was it right. on cult cinema or something like yeah, that? Yeah, so my bachelor's, I did a double honours, which was philosophy with film studies. Initially, I did philosophy with history, and I dropped history to do film studies because it was way more fun. I think you made the right fun. choice yeah. there. Yeah. But again, like I said, I'm a history nerd in essence, and um, for the and that's why I started off with history, but uh, mm. I decided to do film studies instead. Um, com- so I combined philosophy with film studies. My dissertation then was to do with powerful women in fantasy, 
because I kind of got a little bit um, hung up on how people perceive powerful women in fantasy. Are they actually powerful? So I ended up questioning, whenever it's International Women's Day, my Facebook is full of nerds putting up pictures of Ripley or Sarah Connor going, yay, strong women. (laughs) Now, a lot of academics I discovered when I was at uni and a young lad were kind of like, are they strong women? Or are they just, in the films, they're actually just regular women or, shall we say, like Sarah Connor, she's a little sort of blonde like lovely little girl and then <laughs> she gets she gets terrorized both of them get terrorized and then they basically take on uh let's call them patriarchal roles they mm. become mothers sarah connor literally in the second film completely changes as a character yeah she's very and different be- and yeah. becomes basically defensive over her child and mm. ripley in the second film gets a surrogate um daughter she gets Newt. Newt. Yeah. So some academics have sort of said, you know, what we perceive as strong women in Hollywood are actually just what basically men tell us strong women are, which is mothers, nurse types, uh, even even like the good witch, bad witch. The good mm. witch, the, the bad witch is basically an independent woman who uses magic for herself. So that was my initial dissertation. When I did the masters, I did I, I dropped the philosophy altogether. I went, <laughs> I'm all about cinema. So I did cult film studies, and my dissertation in that was on um, cult cinema from the point of view of, is is there such a thing as cult cinema right. as being anti-mainstream? So cult always positions itself, and be it Arrow or the Prince Charles, they always present, yeah, we're edgy, we're, we're not like the mainstream. And my dissertation was basically pointing out, again, I wasn't the first person to do this, academics wrote about this for years, that uh, the cult the whole cult brand is a brand it's designed to sell you films now it's designed to um it uses sorry uh similar structures to mainstream cultures so there's still an elitism to cult fandom whether you go to a convention or say the prince charles screenings or tarantino fans you know they're not really anti-mainstream they're just mimicking you know Fan knowledge. Fan knowledge is still a sort of hierarchy, and Arrow is still a big corporation making lots of money out of people. How is that any different from anybody else? You know. Yeah, I mean, have you seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I have. Now, did you find this is spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Spoilers. By the way, when Kurt Russell was doing his voiceover three mm-hmm. quarters into the film, he was talking about how is it Rick Dalton, who's Leonardo DiCaprio's yeah. character, been to Italy and he'd worked with Antonio Margheriti and Enzo G. Castellari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, now I know who those people mm-hmm. are because yeah. I've seen films of theirs. Yeah. But your average Joe Blow kind of Tarantino fan mm-hmm. who watches three films a year. Yeah. He ain't going to have a fucking clue who any of those nah, people are. Yeah. So it's, is this just Tarantino sort of showing off? Yes, it is. Well, yeah, I've just answered yes, my quick I... question. So it's like, well, who is this for? It's for Tarantino yeah. to go, look at me, look how knowledgeable I am. Yeah. About... I, f- I felt, I mean, personally, I, I thought that film was a little bit bland. <laughs> I didn't right, really okay. like it. but um, Yeah, it's I... a weird one. Not a lot happens for like the first hour. But then it kind of, I don't know. I no, Loads of stuff happens, Greg. Uh, people walk, <laughs> people drive, there's feet. <laughs> there's lots a lot of, of feet. feet. Yeah. Um, there's a pointless Bruce Lee gag. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone likes Charles that Charles Manson bit. turns up for two seconds. That's, that's a thing. 
it's you know, just Caprio it's just, talks to a girl for, yeah, for about yeah. 10 minutes. That scene is actually a brilliant scene. I like oh, that okay. scene. But basically, by and large, I just felt the film was like, this film isn't really about anything. You know what is good? The film within the film, the Western that they're making. I really want to see that film. Yeah. That's a brilliant film that they're making. I'm kind of with you. I, I yeah. enjoyed the film, but yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of with you on some of those criticisms. Yeah, the, the Bruce Lee stuff, I'm thinking, what the fuck is the point of this? I liked, I went, I kind of liked the fact that initially it was like, okay, so this isn't a cartoony, goofy, violent Tarantino film like the last couple have been. Um, this is a little bit more realistic. And then the ending with the flamethrower. And I was like, okay, so is this just been a massive gag the entire time <laughs> building up to because because my favorite tarantino is still um uh jackie brown oh uh, yeah you mark mode yeah it's as it, well because it's the one that's a straightforward film it's not a tarantino film it's all full of goofy violence and nudge nudge wink winks although there is a few of those um fan bits yeah and then this i went oh this is this is just going to be a straightforward normal oh wait there's a flamethrower <laughs> <laughs> but anyway i yeah, go on. No, no but I, th- I think that does sort of tie in very nicely to kind of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I do agree in the sense that I think the real cult stuff now is the stuff that is just online only. Mm-hmm. Like, are you on Amazon Prime? Yes. Basically, anything that's just really straight to Amazon Prime that literally are films that you've never heard of ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're made for about ten pounds. Mm-hmm. I guess that is technically what is would now be considered to be cult cinema because I, I guess like it's just really, 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 really low budget stuff. Like Thing ridiculously is, low budget, no the word, budget. The word cult really, or the or the the name cult is really a retrospective term that gets treated as a genre. So when people were making, when Edward was making movies, he wasn't sitting there going, ah, this is going to be a cult classic. He was legitimately <laughs> trying to make a movie. He was, and Tommy you know? was out as well. Yeah, and, and they, yeah, they all, they, the, the real classic cult movies weren't trying to be cult movies. They just became cult movies over a period of time. Whereas if somebody's trying to make a Western, it's like, right, well, it has to be set in America. There has to be cowboy hats and there has to be horses. You know, there's generic features. Yeah. And that's why I'm just Tropes. like, it's very difficult, you know, even even if a film is a low-budget, unknown film, does that make it a cult film? I would personally say no. That could just be a low-budget... It's just shit. Which they are. shit, or it might fairness. just be a forgotten film. There's loads of films out there that are probably have more cultness to them, but just have been lost. Right. So you wouldn't say... I mean, let me just throw this out there. Mm-hmm. So is Anchorman a cult movie? Arguably, yes. Yeah. It's a mainstream cult movie. Mm-hmm. I mean... Going back to my dissertation, I, I argued two points. I argued one, there's the two halves. The first was that um, cult isn't anti-mainstream, it mimics mainstream. And the second was that there's cult features in the mainstream as well. And Anchorman, perfect example. Anchorman fans will go to quote-alongs, they will dress up as the characters. Very Rocky Horror. I hate quote-alongs, you know. just the idea just makes me cringe. <laughs> I know, it makes but, me cringe too. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. But is Step Brothers? A cult movie? Probably not. No one seems to give a shit about that movie. Yeah, I've seen Step Brothers not that long ago, and it's just not. I don't know. It's kind of. It was alright. It's just mm. not. It's not that great. Anchorman is much better. In fairness, but yeah. I mean, it sounds like uh, from. So <laughs> I. I got to be honest. I kind of knew after you stopped doing the website reviews from the outer rim yeah. or the blog. Is it a blog technically? Yeah, I mean. I suppose we should rewind a bit 
in t- when you asked me, what are you? How did I, whatever, start doing this? So when, at, Limbis- at the Limbiscuit gig, yeah, yeah. when Reviews and Everyone was born, originally then it was just uh, a blog. And then I bought, it was a Word WordPress. And then you yeah, can yeah. buy the domain name. So it then became a .com. People still use WordPress now for like podcasts and stuff. Yeah. So it then became like a little mini website. It's realistically a blog. Mm. But what I discovered is, um, if it's a WordPress thing, you don't get a press pass. If it says .com, people think you're a journalist. So that made a big <laughs> that made a big difference um, in terms yeah. of getting my foot in the door. And at that point, blog- blogging was I don't know if it was fairly new or whether I was just at the tail end of that being a thing. No, did, people still blog now. Yeah, I did that for a while, and then I started doing the uh, the Croydon Radio stuff. So why did you stop doing the blog? Because I was doing the radio. <laughs> That's so basically you just kind of it, was, it was one or the other. Um, I, I missed out a step. Um, initially, I did reviews for a Croydon-based magazine oh, that right. was called Deep. It was a listings magazine. Okay. So it was a little free one that used to get handed out in pubs. All right. Any, any Croydon out there, you might remember this little magazine. <laughs> um, half of Great it was name. just funny little articles. It was like all volunteers. And then the other half was listings of bands and stuff that were playing in Croydon. And I just reviewed films in that. Then when that folded, that ceased to exist, I just went, well, I'm, I'll just keep this going. Did the blog. And then the blog led on to somebody suggesting to me, oh, you should, you know, there's this thing called Croydon Radio. And then it was just a natural progression. I was like... I'll, I'll, I'm moving on from writing. People seem to be more interested in podcasts and in radio shows than sitting there reading somebody else's reviews. So, yeah, I just progressed that way. Yeah, and I've been on your Crane Radio show. I appeared Yay. on the Suspiria episode. I, it was great. It was one of the, the best ex, no, radio experiences I've actually had, <laughs> slash podcast, whatever. Um, no, it was a lot was of a fun. a pretty good show, yeah. And it I've was, been on yours, your Crane yeah, Radio show back in the day. Yeah, Crane Radio. Before... Radio. You got too hot for radio. And fired again. Yeah, that's actually know. when we re-met. So we met at Mark's birthday thing. Yep. And then a couple it of years passed. A couple of years, and, and then, then I discovered you at a radio show. Yeah, I on was Croydon Radio. <clears throat> I well. was appearing on Tom's show at that point. I was doing the once a month just to talk about films and stuff. Blather on for about an hour while mm-hmm. he actually did entertaining stuff on his show. And then yeah. Uh, I we went to a meeting because the owners of the station like to have these like meetings with all the DJs. Have a meeting, and yeah, you were there, and I'm like, I know you, I know you, <laughs> and like, oh, you do this, sh- you're the host of that show. Oh, yeah. you, I would love to do a show like. Yeah, I was that. like, who's this? Who's this guy who's doing a cult movie show? I do a cult movie show. <laughs> Who the hell is? Oh, it's Greg. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> yeah, well, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it was awesome, and then. Uh, yeah, I started doing my own radio show, and then yeah, you you did your show, and I mean you had all. It's kind of like this show in a way. I, I totally ripped off your idea. In a way. <laughs> well, I ripped I off other people. Well, <laughs> it's not a new idea, exactly. But like, it was cool. Like, you got people that you knew onto yeah. the show to talk about sort of these cult invert comics yeah. films. Um, I mean, from I mean, apart from my show, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your favorite episodes of the show that you did? Off the top of your head, not to put you on the spot. I really liked doing uh, Showgirls, funnily enough. Um, and <laughs> How I really did you get liked... around doing that on a PG format? With great difficulty. <laughs> um, some some bits, 
I mean, when you think when you're talking about the movie, as long as you're not discussing like some of the curse words yeah. and and, sexual and then she things. got fucked by Carl McLaughlin in a swimming pool, and she looked like a dolphin. She was going exactly. Like um, <laughs> I suppose. Well, I kind of carried on my themes that I've always been obsessed with, like what makes a film a cult? How can something be mainstream and a cult? And Showgirls was the perfect showcase for the argument that a film can be a mainstream film and still have a cult following. And we were discussing earlier how that's kind of made a comeback. Uh, you know, the uh, documentary that's yeah. been shown. Um, that was an interesting show because it was all about camp and kitsch and how the film was originally sold as being a straightforward movie. But now... They've gone down the Tommy was over of going, oh, we did it on purpose. It was bad on purpose. And that is how Showgirls is now sold to the audience. Right. And Halloween <laughs> Halloween 3 is another example of a film that was hated at the time and now is loved. So, again, that was easy for me to do because I was fascinated how something could go from being hated to loved. Uh, Halloween as a franchise is hardly underground. But no. here's this Halloween film that... um. I mean, now everyone loves Halloween 3 and now everyone loves Showgirls and now everyone loves Highlander 2 and I was kind of looking into the... Well, you know what I mean. People love to hate. About Jason Goes to Hell. We never never talk about Jason Goes to Hell, even though that is making a bloody comeback now. So, um, yeah. Off the top of my head, those are two of my favourites. Yeah. Um, El Tupo was... Tupo Topo. Yeah. That was also a lot of fun, you know. And Suspiria was very cool. No, nah, that was yeah. a lot of fun. And th- you also had um, my co-host from the main, the main configuration, Rhea Fenn. She came on your show yeah, a few she, times. Yeah, she came on quite a few times, yeah. You did Mother's Day, which I guess is another film. I'm not sure how you managed to get away with doing that in a PG format. <laughs> it takes a while to learn how to do it, Greg. But one of the earliest shows we did sorry, was um, Pink Flamingos. Ah, uh, okay. And John Waters, generally. That was a complete disaster. That was like show number two. <laughs> and the reason why it was a disaster is because me and my guest at the time, uh, Sarah Hughes, we were trying to talk about it without talking about anything that happens in the film. Oh, right. <laughs> and talking about John Waters without talking about any of his trash films. So basically, it was a disaster. But we didn't talk about anything. I can't even bear to listen to that show anymore. Oh, wow. Not yeah. that you can, because unfortunately, Korean Radio doesn't exist. So no. unless you I have download... them all saved somewhere, but right. I can put them up. You know? Oh wow! Okay. If people want to listen to me, maybe I'll put them up someday. You know? I have to, I have to hit you up on that because <laughs> yeah, I'd be quite curious to listen to some of those shows because I didn't really know you back then. Yeah, that's the thing. I knew a bit, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't really get to know you better until you started doing off the reels yeah. with Carl Rowland, who mm-hmm. has been on my show as well um how did you end up doing off the reels well that was very interesting obviously i'm friends with carl we're all croyd knights com- uh, comic book type people i mean i'm not a comic person but you know like no, nerds. he's super all, super comic book guy. we're all nerds and we all drank in the same pub the ship and he knew i i was doing you were still the radio doing show the radio show at the slash time, podcast yeah. let's call it a podcast he had his own podcast and Carl's like a little empire builder. He has all these different shows that he's trying to um, put out there. And one of the things he was like, I'm thinking about doing a live one in in the pub, uh, the Dog and Ball, where his co-host Dan was working at the time, basically gave us free access to the function room because it basically brought people in. People would be buying pints. Yeah. Um, he, would, he wanted to do like half discussion, half games. So yeah. I did the discussion, he did the games. Mm-hmm. Discussion was well easy because I we just did it as film news. So if a story was boring and the audience weren't going for it, you're done in 10 seconds, move on to the next story. And uh, it was a hell of a lot of fun, yeah. 
Yeah, most of the stories were, this is going to be remade, and all the audience just go, oh. The best, <laughs> the best thing to do was just to just put, put stuff out there that you know people are going to be up, upset. If you put out something that was good, there's no discussion there. People just go, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, it's good to see Kurt Russell getting work. Oh, that's nice. Or if you put something like, yeah, the remake in Garfield, everyone would be like, what? And that's where the discussion came from, you know. Yeah, it's quite funny listening to those shows because um, the show hasn't been running for a couple of years, mm-hmm. um, but they're all still up to listen to. Yeah, and it's funny listening to stuff in hindsight. If if you do kind of go back yeah. to listen to them, where you mention these stories and half of them just are stuff that has never happened. Yeah, before. some of it is just like, internet bullshit. Rid- yeah. Ridley Scott doing a Monopoly movie has been talked about for years, <laughs> and it's just never happened. But some things like Tim Burton's going to do. Dumbo. It's like, that'd be fucking stupid. That would never... <laughs> it happened. There's going to be a Dark Crystal TV series. No, get out of here. No. <laughs> or they're doing a Karate Kid TV show. Yeah. Like, yeah, all that kind of stuff. You can't tell what's real and what's fiction sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I have to thank you for, like I said, that I met Reoffend through you, through doing Off The Reels. Yeah, yeah. So I'd done one episode of Off The Reels maybe two mm-hmm. i've definitely done one because um you would do it guys were doing a wrestling episode yeah i love wrestling so i remember that one that was a good one yeah the, the first one of those was actually quite fun and it's um it's a cool idea i think just the idea of doing like a live kind of podcast yeah. type thing it, with the right audience <laughs> could get a bit rowdy <laughs> yes they did but that was part of the fun yeah yeah and so you're not doing anything now, then. Not these days. From, no. I'm kind of keeping you, sort of dragging you from like <laughs> out of retirement every but single time. Is, I make you do these shows. This is easy. I just turn. You've got everything set up. I just turn up. I can talk bollocks. I'm not in charge. You're you're <laughs> the one who has to sort of manage all this. I just turn up, and this is way easier than actually running a thing yourself. So I'm I'm happy to do this sort of thing. Oh, no, it's yeah. cool. No, I'm very very obviously very happy to have you on because I've had you on so many times. <laughs> um, do you miss doing? The blog I, or the radio show? Here's the thing. So, in the end, I stopped doing. Well, Crawling Radio just stopped. Yeah, and that's when I kind of got a bit disenfranchised. Like, oh, I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna take a break from all this kind of stuff. And I thought I'd miss it, but no, not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, the blogging and stuff. Blogging, like I said, I I feel that now podcasting has become a thing. Blogging's kind of disappeared. I don't know anyone who says they religiously read a blog in the same way that they religiously listen to a podcast. So I wouldn't bother with the blogging and also I think when I started Review Snatterman because I had just I'd just come out of university so I thought my opinion on films was brilliant I thought the world must <laughs> know unique the world and, must yeah. know what I think about new Ghostbusters it must know <laughs> and now I'm just like actually you know not not we can't all be Mark Mode. no and I was just looking back some of my reviews I think a little bit cringy I'm trying a little bit too hard to be clever so I'm yeah. kind of like that's not really my thing anymore. It's much easier to come on other people's shows and have a laugh than, than try yeah, and yeah, push that on people. If the radio show hadn't stopped, mm-hmm. so if Korean Radio was still a thing, do you think you'd still be doing it now? Probably not, because even towards the end of that, I was I felt like I was just going through the motions. Right. So when I started it, I was like, yeah, this is great. I've got a radio show. Maybe I am the new marker mode. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be talking about movies. This is fun. But then after a while... I just felt like I was kind of doing the same observation and the same gags. And I just felt like, okay, you know, like I said, there's only my, one of my main things is taking mainstream films and then talking about how they have a cult following. I did that a few times. Some of the other gags sort of like, it's so bad. It's good. Those kind of reviews. I just kind of, I ran out of steam 
really. So when it did stop, I was kind of like, okay, I'll take a break, you know. Yeah, and then a break becomes like, yeah. A break becomes permanent. So you would prefer being a fan to like just being a blogger again. Yeah. So that's something that I found not to go too in depth, Mm -hmm. but... Um, for example, when I went to Fright Fest this year yep. compared to last year, this year I didn't really have any insight into kind of the behind the scenes workings mm-hmm. and it was much, much more fun. Yep. It was a lot more fun. I didn't know any of the politics behind the scenes. I think that's a huge thing. It was just a lot. I just go in just to watch movies and then I can go home and I don't need to think yeah. about it. I started doing this stuff because I was a fan. But then when you do it perhaps too much, it becomes more like a job or a yeah. chore. And yeah, the, the yeah, and then you oh you get to meet people, know people, but then that becomes cliquey and, yeah. and as you say, the politics I don't like and, that. I don't yeah. like the whole like, oh, you know, I'm getting my press pass and I'm watching all these films at the London Film Festival or whatever. Or I know yeah. this person in the industry, or I know that person in the industry. It's all just a bunch of people just circle jerking. Yeah. And it's when, just not interesting. <laughs> to me. Do you know what I mean though? It's just all just it's all masturbation, isn't it? Yeah. And like one of the reasons I definitely wouldn't do blogging anymore. Podcasting, I don't know, maybe because it's a bit fun. I'm doing it right now. Um, <laughs> writing shit is hard. Writing shit is it's well, actually, I, I enjoy I the creativity of of Ryan. Um, that was kind of an extension of me being at uni. I'd finished my film studies degree. Um, I clearly am not going to get a job <laughs> with a film <laughs> studies degree. So doing um, doing 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 the blogging was kind of keeping a little bit of that creativity left over from studying film going, but. Um, it's a chore sitting down and, and it kind of sucks the fun. If you go and see a film, let's say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Mm. I wasn't blown away by it, but I'm not that bothered. Whereas if I was still writing reviews, I'd be sitting down and I'd be dissecting it. And then I'd probably finish my review and end up just feeling a little bit like pissed off. <laughs> like, a, you know, you're digging yourself into a hole of getting angrier or, or overthinking things. And sometimes it's good to just go see a film. And if you didn't like it, Whatever. Yeah, you don't just care. didn't like if you it. Did like it? You can go to your mate. Oh well, you need to see this thing. It's crazy, you know. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I tried. The element of it being like work mm. is what I got. Yeah, sucked, um, drawn into, and then it was no longer fun. You know. Yeah, I tried starting a blog. I say starting yeah. a blog. It was basically just me writing reviews on Facebook and stuff. And the first film I chose was just really boring is the worst thing is if you really really like a film you can gush about it if you really hate a film you can say this is shit this is the worst fucking thing ever if the film's just not that great it's like right i have to write three thousand words on this (laughs) film that's you know just meh and it's like how the fuck do you manage to do this where do you how do you not start all your reviews the same way and it's just oh it was just too much work Mm -hmm. it just it would take me hours whereas like if i was just doing a podcast i can just press record i can ramble away i can edit so it actually is listenable to most people and a good ramble can be entertaining yeah it's very difficult to write down things that are funny yeah i mean when i did tone right when I did the uh, Vomit Gore trilogy episode of this, that was literally <laughs> just... Because uh, I didn't think anyone else would want to do that show with me. So it was just like, oh, fuck, I just literally just sit in front of a microphone and press record and just try and kind of organise what's in my head in like mm-hmm. a structured way and then just blow it out. But like, I mean, yeah, recording that took an hour and a half. Yeah. Really. But trying to write like that type of content, yeah. that length, it would take me like... 
days to do mm-hmm. that. It's just there's just not enough time in the world. And presenting, really. presenting, hard. be it be it like live, mm. like at with the uh, um, at the pub when we used to do the live ones, or here, you know. It's it's all about timing and the tone of your voice, which you don't get with the written word. You know, <laughs> mm. it's it's hard to tell sometimes if someone's being sarcastic or not when they've written it down. Yeah, you know, I mean, you must you must know people or been in situations where a text is being misinterpreted or something. That happens to me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas when you're talking, it's kind of obvious if I'm being sarcastic by the tone yeah. of my voice. So it's it's more fun and easier to do podcasting than it is blogging. I think. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you like enjoy doing the yeah. show, Tom. <laughs> Awesome. We'll have to have you on again to like talk about Nazis because yeah. Always happy to talk about <laughs> Nazis. <laughs> Your favourite yeah. thing in the world. So I've got Tom on the show today once again, and we're going to talk about John Waters. Hey! Hey! Who I, believe it or not, the first time I ever heard of John Waters was The Simpsons. Yeah. Because obviously he's on that episode where Homer thinks Bart is gay. This is a brilliant episode. <laughs> yeah. And like, it was praised at the time. I was worried that, like, oh, I suppose now it's a little bit kind of gay panicky because, mm-hmm. like, Homer thinks, oh, my God, Bart's gay. And they go to the steel mill and stuff like steel that. Mill, yeah. But, yeah, that's the first time I ever heard of John Waters. It was mm-hmm. from that. I didn't know who he was. Right. Just he's that guy from The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. So after that, I mean, in terms of the films, um, obviously he's he's quite <laughs> – what am I trying to say? So he he does have sort of quite a wide ranging back catalogue that people kind of put in different categories. So there's his early stuff, which is really 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 rough. Yeah. Um. So there, his first full length film he made is a film called Mondo Trasho, mm-hmm. which is black and white and doesn't even really have any dialogue in it. It's literally, I'm trying to think of a sort of easy comparison i suppose it's kind of similar to something like scorpio rising by kenneth anger mm-hmm. in that it's basically literally just kind of 50s and 60s pop music and there's a bunch of stuff going on in yeah. black and white kind of like well a mondo film in a way you know yeah i mean it's it's okay but it's probably not that interesting unless you're like a completist you probably don't really need to watch nah. it and that was followed by multiple maniacs yeah which is also in black and white. And we talk about Pink Flamingos in a minute. If people think Pink Flamingos is really amateurish and really cheap, it's like uh, <laughs> Multiple Maniacs is even more amateurish than that, if you can believe it. It's yeah. again black and white, but it actually has kind of dialogue this time. And it's got, in a way, a very similar story to Pink Flamingos. It's very enjoyable. It's got a lot of transgressive elements in there. Mm-hmm. But again, it's super, super rough. Which is interesting because I think, do you think, just this is a total incidental aside, but do you think people kind of take the whole, like, how a film looks thing too seriously in terms of basing a quality of the movie? Yeah, and definitely with John Waters. Yeah. And it's not a straightforward yes answer, so I should have, added, <laughs> should have added more to that. But yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. I don't think... Um, yeah, the substance of the film is definitely more so than than just how it appears, particularly if it's low budget. You have to give a little bit of leeway with a low budget film. 
everyone's got to start somewhere. I mean, John Waters especially doesn't really kick off until Pink Flamingos. But those early films are sort of, I guess, him getting his grounding, getting his early work. They're almost like pre or pilot movies. Yeah. You know? It kind of like him kind of working out working what out he's doing what he's as going along. And yeah. Yeah. And his most successful, most well-known film, I think, mm-hmm. is the next film. So it's Pink Flamingos. Yeah. Which would be a more obvious choice for a show like this. Yes, it would be. But I didn't want to go down that route. Yeah, almost too obvious, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Pink Flamingos um, is kind of the film that people kind of have heard of most. Um, it was very popular in the midnight movie circuit back yep. in the day. It is very, very infamous for good reason. Mm-hmm. It's got... a very 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 offense is probably not the right word because i don't this is the thing about john waters films is that they i don't see how people could find them offensive mm-hmm. but they are trashy trash is the word i was going to pick up on here yeah. i mean the amount of times trash is referred to in john waters and the pope of trash his nickname the pope of trash he's very good at yeah not making offensive films these aren't films that throw around that, that try to make you throw up it's not the beast in heat no exactly <laughs> they're, they're, they're bad taste done in a in a jolly way yeah know? they're kind of upbeat happy films yeah in a strange sort they're of way they're all very upbeat and happy really yeah. despite the subject matters you know yeah they're not films where kind of horrible things happen to people yeah which yeah it's, they're very very unique because it's like how do you classify them because some people classify them as like exploitation films but mm-hmm. i don't think they really are that exploitative i think i think john waters is very good i mean this is basically like punk cinema he's very yeah. good at um playing with things that should be offensive it's very self-aware very art- artistic you know he d- he could he could make a better film but he's choosing to make films which are a little bit um designed to uh wind people up yeah he's making films sort of within his means so yeah. whereas sort of mondo trasher and multiple maniacs are kind of more in the vein of like an andy warhol or like a kenneth anger mm-hmm. or a jack smith type very very low budget american almost experimental film yeah with Pink Flamingos, it's more about na- the narrative. So there is an actual story and there's actual characters. And that, although Divine was in Multiple Maniacs and he was kind of the main character, mm-hmm. he, he definitely became super, super famous after Pink Flamingos. Yeah, for sure. And which moves us very nicely into the next film, which is Female Trouble, mm-hmm. which is probably my favourite Waters film that I've seen. Oh, really? Yes, it's very, very divine heavy. If you like divine, this is probably the best film of his oeuvre for you. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, it's again, every film he made is sort of more and more and more professional because it's quite an interesting cycle. Yeah. And yeah, I would say of kind of his pre up to kind of the 1980s, I would say, I don't know, this is the film that I kind of enjoyed the most. Female trouble, that is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's again, it's got a rawness to it, but it's not super, super raw. Mm-hmm. Like it, uh, like um, Pink Flamingos, it has a lot of scenes where it's just I don't know, Divine wandering around, yeah. and there's like a fifties pop song in the background mm-hmm. for like five minutes, where it's not really doing anything to advance the story. Yeah, or like where you've got the guy with the singing asshole. Like that's <laughs> not really like. Uh, yeah, it's not really advancing the plot now, is yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, Female Trouble it is an actual kind of, again, it's a more developed narrative. 
Yeah, Pink Flamingos is like almost like a little, just a checklist of things which are uh, grotesque or uh, offensive, which is okay in itself. And I understand why everyone holds Pink Flamingos up. Yeah. Um, I know we're going to get to Desperate Living in a moment, mm. but um, Desperate Living is also a checklist of things which are offensive and, and uh, grotesque. But there's more of a story to that. And yeah. that kind of follows on from Female Trouble, which, as you say, is more story more story than shock, whereas Pink Flamingos is more shock than story. Yeah. And then the third one, as we'll discuss, I think is a little balance of both, but we'll get to that, yeah. for sure. Now, Female Trouble is quite interesting in that it's definitely got a set structure mm. in that it, Divine's character at the start of the film is at school. I think yes. it's meant to be like 15 or something. Yeah. And then, you know, she gets basically raped. It's more jolly than that sounds, believe me. <laughs> but basically, she has a child, and it's her kind of growing up to woman. It's the life cycle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then it kind of stays. After about a third of the way into the film, it kind of stays at that sort of same mm-hmm. age and things like that. And then we move to Desperate Living, which, again, we're going to obviously, this is what we're talking about on the show. So we're going to talk about it in a lot more detail. But again, it's more kind of evolved again matured again i think because of the success of pink flamingos waters had more money to play with now in relative terms it's still not that much money but Mm -hmm. for a film like this you can definitely tell that there's more money involved and they have artificial prosthetics and things like that but again it's still kind of trashy he's still using the dreamlanders which we're going to go on to in a minute sort of his troop of actors in baltimore um, which is where all his films are set. I don't know, are the later films, are they still set in Baltimore as well, or is it just up to, like, I'm pretty polyester? sure Serum, Serum Mum is, Pekka definitely is, mm. Hairspray is, Crybaby, I'm not sure. But I, I would be, my money would be yes. On okay. Cry, that seems to be his little, like I was saying in between um, recordings, um, that's his kind of Tromaville, <laughs> except it's real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so we'll go into Desperate Living in a lot more detail in a minute. And then he made Polyester in 1981 uh, with Divine, but it's the first film of his that looks glossy and professional. It's his first mainstream film. The early films are fun, but that's him playing around. Mm. And this is him moving more into... I don't even want to say mainstream, but let's just say not just making shocking uh, pantomime. He actually had proper money. His films, they actually look like how other films, more mainstream yeah. films, would look at the time. And it shows that he's not just a one-trick pony. It's yeah. not just grotesque pantomime. Hey, I'm John Waters. I can also do straight-up, you know, comedies. Yeah, so whereas, I don't know, in my opinion, you know, just retreading what I've already kind of said, so Modern Trash Show is okay. You can probably live without watching that one. Mm. Multiple Main X I like, but it's incredibly low budget. Plink Flamingos, you kind of have to watch it. It's one of these films, it's like... It's one of those ones which is... Cult canon, as yeah. I call it. If you're a cult fan and you haven't seen Pink Flamingos, you have to see Pink Flamingos. It just is. You know? Yeah, it's not a good film no. in the traditional sense of the word, but there you are kind better of John Waters films, have yeah. to watch it because it's the most notorious mm-hmm. one. And Female Trouble I, is my favourite. Mm-hmm. Um, Desperate Living I like as well. I'm going into more detail on that. Polyester I like, but from this point, it's... Obviously, there's a, uh, an edge being taken off his work because yeah. it's more mainstream and it's kind of more... Um, the, the rough edges are being taken off. It's kind of less... It's not less subversive. The subversiveness is still there, but yeah. it has to be more palatable for a mainstream audience. 
I feel it, it's That's my the... least enjoyable of the mainstream ones. I could, I, I would be tempted to say you could pass on it. Um, obviously, you wouldn't because you need to watch all John Waters movies. <laughs> but um, it, I, I mean, you, if you compare this to some of the later ones like Cry Baby and Serial Man, they're they're way more. Oh yeah, uh, fun. Yeah, and polyester. Interesting. I know we're not talking about polyester mm-hmm. on the show as such, but it's uh, being released by Criterion. And like you said, um, when the films came out, you had sniff cards. Yeah, smellovision. Smellovision. And you said like the version that you had didn't have it. Well, the Criterion yeah. version does have those. I'm going to buy two copies. <laughs> one so I can do it, and one yeah. so I can have it perfect. Yeah. 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 And then he made, I know, possibly his most well-known film, which is Hairspray. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a musical. Obviously, Divine is one of the main characters yeah. in it, but it's the main character is played by Ricky Lake, mm-hmm. the talk show host, weirdly. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was, I think, the first John Waters film I actually saw was Hairspray. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. Yeah. Again, it's very like, it's kind of like a PG kind of John Waters yeah. film in a way. It's sort of very fun. Turned it into a musical. Yeah, musical. It's and been they remade it with John Travolta. Travolta. <laughs> yeah. <Doing> Divine. <laughs> yeah, oh God, very strange. Um, but yeah, it's um, it, it's a fun film. It's a good film. Still subversive. It deals with race mm. issues and stuff. And then we're kind of getting into the modern, mm-hmm. well, kind of inverted commas, modern John Waters territory. So Cry Baby, which I've not seen. Uh, very good. Yeah, I would say Cry Baby and Hairspray compete for being the most sort of successful or most loved of the mainstream ones. And then Serial Mom, from what I understand, is Waters' favourite film that he made, or he thought it was his best mm-hmm. film that he had made, which I've seen. And it's kind of fun in a sort of blackly comedic way because yeah. it's you know Kathleen you've got Kathleen Turner is like you know this, this uh, nuclear family she's the mum and she kind of kills people for what are petty reasons petty reasons but we can all sympathise with her <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it's, it's fun I guess but yeah it's just weird watching a John Waters movie and you've got like you know well known Hollywood actors yeah. in there it's just very very strange um, and then after that, he made Pekka, which yeah. I've not seen. Pekka's good. I think Pekka tends to get forgotten about. I think it's, it deserves more attention and more praise. But um, it's fairly low-key, and that's probably the reason why. But it's it's enjoyable. It's very enjoyable. Uh, Cecil B. Demented. Which is a weird one, because he made it in collaboration with, I think, a French company. I don't know. He either didn't write it. or Basically, it's not It's not a 100% John Waters film. It's a collaborative right. effort. But if, if you haven't, if, you, if anyone who hasn't seen it, that is definitely worth watching. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> cool. And then he, his, well, I, the final film that he's made to date, and this mm-hmm. is from 2004, so it's quite a while yeah. ago, 15 years, a film called A Dirty Shame. Which I didn't particularly enjoy. Yeah, now, from what I understand, and you can obviously correct me yeah. on this, Tom, but basically, that's him apparently going back to his roots, so to speak. Exactly. Is he doing, like, a St. Anger? Yes, and <laughs> just like St. Anger, it doesn't quite hit the mark. You know, if you're a director and your your style has evolved, sometimes it's not great to go back and try and relive your hits of your youth. And also, there's... And you've picked up on this a lot. There's something about the rawness and edginess of the earlier films, the grittiness, the low-budgetness, that you can't just recreate. You can't just yeah. press rewind. And it just feels a bit... And also, like, some some things only work within the time capsule, the context of when they came out. And to try and re... It'd be, it'd be like trying to make a Karen film now. It just doesn't quite... 
hit d- d- things have moved on a little bit and it's just dirty shame I was watching it when I watched it I just didn't it didn't feel like the old films didn't feel like the new films it just it's yeah it's, it's a bit of a letdown frankly yeah so don't watch that film but I mean I really, yeah you mm. definitely don't need to do that and the sad thing is you say like it's 2004 yeah John Waters has said in interviews before he feels sorry for film directors now because he struggles to get the reason he's not making films is because he's like it's impossible to make those kind of films anymore mm. it's difficult to get the funding um everything's changed he, he's not really into the he's not into making films anymore and David Lynch said the same thing you know yeah hence why he hasn't done anything no. since Inland Empire apart from New Twin Peaks which New is Twin Peaks and music awesome. yeah he does a lot of music now as well yeah so that's the filmography um we'll kind of go into because I've got a couple of questions I'm going to throw Tom's way sort of as we go along um now kind of touched on it so when we're talking about the filmography is mm-hmm. the Dreamlanders so these are yeah John Waters' own sort of troop of actors or people who are friends of his or acquaintances yeah. in Baltimore, the most well-known of which is Divine. Mm-hmm. But there are also uh, um, uh, Mink Stoll, Mary Vivian Pierce, uh, Cooking Mueller, uh, Edith Massey and David Lockery, sort of people yeah. like that. They're kind of the main kind of dreamlanders. Yeah. Now, the the interesting thing about Desperate Living, because we're going to talk about that now, yeah. um, Divine is obviously cl- more closely related to John, John Waters. Yes. Divine is not in Desperate Living. Now, the reason that he's not in Desperate Living, although he was supposed to be, is that he obviously got very successful following Pink Flamingos, mm-hmm. and he had started um, working in theatre, and he was basically double-booked. So basically he had a gig, he couldn't get out of it, so hence he couldn't be in Desperate Living. Yeah. And the other kind of absentee from like his core kind of group of actors is David Lockery, um, who had a bit more of a kind of, well, he, he wasn't double booked, he was dead. So as to why he couldn't be in the film. Permanently double booked. Yeah, so unfortunately he had died um, the year Desperate Living was made, 1977, mm-hmm. of a drug overdose. So hence why he couldn't be in the film. Um, but his... He's got, a, I would say, a main kind of core group of actors that appear in most of his films, at least up to kind of this film, Desperate Living. Yeah. And then they're kind of, some of them are still in the films. I think Mink Stoll is still in pretty much all his films, mm-hmm. but not necessarily in like a lead role. They kind of have thing. cameos. Yeah. Serial Mum, there's a, one or two cameos of the early, earlier people. Mm. Um. So, yeah, of, of the, the Dreamlanders. So, yeah, Mink Stoll is kind of. Now, it's interesting because the lead character kind of changes throughout the film. Yeah. So that's one thing I was kind of going to. But she is kind of, you assume, is the main character. So she's Peggy Gravel. Great mm-hmm. name. Love that name so <laughs> yeah. much. Um, Edith Massey is in the film as the evil Queen Carlotta. She's the best. Uh, Mary Vivian <laughs> Pierce is in the film as the Princess Cuckoo. Mm-hmm. And there's a few other kind of actors who appear in other John Waters films that may be yeah. a bit less well-known. So The Maid, who's Griselda, is played by Jean Hill. Mm-hmm. She appears very briefly in Polyester. Um, she's getting on a bus. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't know if she's in any, any of his other films. And uh, the role that was supposed to be played by Divine as Mole McHenry mm-hmm. is played by Susan Lowe, who, again, was in, like, Female Trouble, but in, like, a smaller role. Um, this is obviously the most well-known kind of uh, John Waters film uh, role, I should say, that she's in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that being said, um, what is the story of Desperate Living, Tom? Right. I suppose... Okay, so... 
there's a housewife who, um, her and her maid uh, kill her husband. So they have to go on the run. They um, discover there's a place where criminals can go and... Um, which is Mortville. Which is a place called Mortville. A place yeah. where criminals can go and hide and live. So they go to Mortville. Mortville is this ramshackle community and it's run by a tyrannical queen <laughs> who takes great pleasure in humiliating the villagers. Uh, Peggy and her maid, they move in with um, a lesbian couple. Uh, then the film is basically a series of uh, flashbacks and little origin stories of mm. the, some of the characters. And uh, gradually um, Peggy moves into the... It's, it's, it's a film about social climbing. Yeah. And also uh, vaguely political and, yeah. and activism, I suppose. It's, and class as well. Yeah, class. Yeah, social climbing and class. Because Peggy comes from... Uh, initially a, a sort of well-to-do family. Yeah. She goes to Morville and she's with the rest of them, the scum of the earth. Yeah. And then gradually in, incorporates herself with the Queen and becomes the Queen's new favourite. The whole time she's in Morville, she does kind of think like, well, these people are peasants, I'm better yeah. than these people. Like she's, yeah, she's in this position that she kind of doesn't seem to kind of understand that she's got herself into and that she's on the run and she's hiding in this kind of, what is basically a shanty town, yes. essentially, with all these kind of outcasts of society. And she's kind of very delusional, and she's not aware that, like, no, these are my people now because I'm on the run for the police. Although that's kind of an incidental thing. The police yes. don't... Are, well, they're not really that involved in the film. There was a policeman. Yeah, it's who a likes policeman. to wear women's underwear and yeah. tells them where Morville is. And the film kind of climaxes, I suppose, with... A sort of, I don't know whether you would call it sort of lesbian activism or because a group of the, the lesbians of the town decide to rise up against uh, the, the Queen of Mortville and have a, a mini revolution and appoint a new queen, which um, is one of the two, um, the two lesbians who yeah, uh, well, were first introduced to. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's multiple themes going on. Yeah, you know. there's actually quite a lot going yeah. on. And that's aside all the random funny little things that happen and grotesque little acts that happen. Yeah, so like a lot of films that I talk about on the show, it's there's two ways to look at it. There's kind of the, look at all the gross shit that happens. Yeah. There's that side, and then there's the actual kind of film criticism, mm -hmm. subtexty kind of shit. Yeah. That, and, you know, I, I like to give both. Yeah, I'm not one of these people. And this film definitely has both. Oh, yeah, without question. I would say, I mean, I'm not, I haven't read up a lot about mm -hmm. his other films, but I would say probably this is the one with the most kind of subtext in it. I mean, I, I can't imagine so. Pink Flamingos has a lot of subtext. It's funny when you were mentioning you, you your favourite was uh, Female Trouble. Yeah. It had the, the best or most narrative, had a decent narrative, let's yeah. put it that way, had a decent narrative. Because these three films, Pink Flamingos, um, Female Trouble, Desperate Living, are known as his trash trilogy. So it doesn't include the the earlier ones that you said, yeah. the, the experimental ones, or when he goes mainstream. This is like his holy holy trilogy. Yeah. And they're very, very, like, different. The first one is just, uh, for me, Pink Flamingos is like, I said, a tick list of goofy, gross shit. Yeah. Female Trouble has less of that and is more narrative-focused. Whereas Desperate Living is my favourite of the three because it seems to be a nice balance of the two. There is way more goofy shit happening in this than in Pink Flamingos. So if you love your grotesque and you just want to sit there and have a laugh with your friends, there's plenty to plenty to see. There really um, is, yeah. And it has a narrative, but 
Whereas Female Trouble is the story of the rise and fall of an individual, this has, as we've already discussed, levels of political um, analogy in there. So you can you can be serious and goofy with this film. Yeah, yeah, you can you can take it yeah. in kind of both ways. And when I first saw this film, because I've got to be honest, Tom, you're much more knowledgeable about John Waters than I am, hence why we're doing this show. <laughs> hey, thank you. But and so the only films I did I'd seen up to kind of when we watched them were Pink Flamingos mm-hmm. and hairspray yeah uh, it's quite interesting when you watch these films kind of back to back sort of pink flamingos is kind of like you say it's quite offbeat yeah it's not really meant to be taken that seriously nah. at all it's just you know throw away yeah like i say look at all this random shit or mm-hmm. literal shit yeah kind of going on and then you've got female trouble which again is still kind of upbeat mm-hmm. and it's kind of fun purely well because of divine mainly but yeah, you got other stuff in there. And then this is very different. It's not depressing, mm-hmm. but it's less jovial. Yeah. It's a lot more kind of, even straight away in the first kind of five minutes, which is awesome, by the way. It, <laughs> yeah. it's, you can tell just the, the main character played well. Uh, Mink stole character, just shouting mm-hmm. every line, sort of pitch of like you know um, Isabel or Johnny in possession level almost like <laughs> hysteria kind of just you know just this neurotic woman like the most neurotic woman ever some amazing lines I think that's another thing um, because people talk about the acting in these films and it's mm-hmm. like you know traditionally yes the acting is not good yeah but it kind of works better than a lot of these kind of films because of the actual lines themselves mm-hmm. I think, and that's John Waters. Yeah, kind of the, writing all these lines. The writing and improvisation is brilliant. Mm. The acting is—I mean, it's it's pantomime acting. Yeah, you know, it, it, is it, very it wouldn't work. It, it wouldn't yeah. work any other way. Yeah, yeah, and it's it all very deliberate. It's not theatrical. Yeah, no, it's not accidental bad acting. Like no. you might get in, say, Troll Two. Everything is <laughs> everything is to me very meticulously almost designed to be consumed as trash, as opposed to just being trash. Yeah, and you notice it's it's his actors who yeah. deliver those kind of lines the best who have been in multiple films of his. Because yeah. they kind of, I think, know the right pitch. Um, so there's some great lines I wrote I wrote <laughs> down from Mink Stoll. So, um, so they get, uh, she gets a phone call and it's a wrong number. And she says, how can you ever repay the 30 seconds you've stolen <laughs> from my life? <laughs> Just amazing. Or And this is kind of why... Again, we're talking about why a film might be a bad date movie. There's a scene where two children are naked <laughs> yeah. in their house. It was the 70s, man. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, the children are having sex. I'm like, oh, my Sodomite. God. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, like, you could be pregnant or whatever it was she was yeah. saying. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah, go on. I was going to say, my favourite line from Mink Star, she does have quite a few mm-hmm. in this film, but my favourite is, so after the husband is murdered, um, so her uh, and the maid <clears throat> are kind of on the run, um, she has this great line, it's like, look at these disgusting trees stealing my oxygen. <laughs> stealing my oxygen. My my favourite lines in this, I've got two. Okay, awesome. so very at the beginning, when she's shouting at the children, she's like, you know, go home to your mother. Doesn't she ever want you? This isn't some communist daycare centre. <laughs> communist daycare centre is beautiful line. Beautiful line. And then the Queen, uh, later on, when she's telling the guards to take her daughter away, they're like, seize her and fuck her. <laughs> just the, the authority in the voice of seize her and fuck her. It's just beautiful. 
beautiful, beautiful, snappy, bitchy lines is what John yeah. Waters is good at. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it's just, if you've never seen the film before and you're watching this and you're like, what the fuck am I watching? Like, this, is this woman going to be shouting for the whole film? Now, luckily, she, she's not because I she don't... She down a little bit, but yeah, there's a she, lot of shouting. There, there is a lot of shouting, but it's... It, it, so much energy, yeah. When, when you kind of watch it a second time you kind of and kind of know more what to expect mm-hmm. it's like okay i kind of get sort of the pitch that this is this is yeah. aimed at at the moment um one of the things that the film's touched on the site is, is class like we said mm-hmm. and also i think kind of because the film is seen as a satire yeah and on authority figures and things like that and so not I mean, we've got the queen the queen's the most obvious example mm-hmm. but there's also the policeman yeah and the policeman is this very perverse figure who kind of is wearing women's underwear, makes them take off their underwear mm-hmm. and makes, puts it on himself and then has some kind of, I don't know, orgasm sort of on the yeah. floor and stuff like that. It doesn't, yeah. I so say that can only be there just, I think, as kind of a critique of, you know, the authoritarian kind of structure in yeah. place or something like that. I don't know. I mean, you ask, like, why Why don't the police, like, attack Mortville? Well, clearly the police know about it. <laughs> and they're in cahoots with the Queen. You know? Yeah. They're totally fine with it, you know? Clearly they must be. And, yeah, it's a, it's a straightforward, let's just take the piss out of the police, you know? <laughs> yeah, and also I think it, it's not an accident that, that all the soldiers are dressed in, like, kind of S&M garb, yeah. sort of leather... And the kind of very fetish boys, kind of yeah. Again, it's a very again Kenneth Anger mm-hmm. kind of those kind of films. Um, interestingly, I mean, yeah. Uh, so Kenneth Anger, Andy Warhol, uh, another one. Uh, I was reading up on John Waters, kind of his kind of inspiration and stuff. Uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. He's a massive, massive fan. fan yeah. Which you know, if you've ever seen a Herschel Gordon Lewis film, you'd probably not be surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Even people like uh, you know William Castle, Russ Meyer. Yeah, William Castle. Yeah, people like that. Yeah, again, doesn't really not really surprised. No, I guess. Um, I think he played hmm. William Castle in. Um, in a film about, I think, Betty Davis or something, or was made for TV, and mm-hmm. he had a cameo playing William Castle. It was fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Just a throwaway thing there, sorry. No, no, that's cool. Um, so, what is it about this film that you would kind of put above all the others? Is it that you say it's kind of, it's, you've got the, the trash elements, mm-hmm. where you've got, like, the subversiveness, and the, and the, to say, there's a lot of pretty fucked up stuff in this yeah. film. But you've got the story as well. Like I said... It's with, right in the middle yeah. of his kind of development. Like I said, you've got... Um, if, if, if you like Pink Flamingos, because it's got the um, the gross and shocking stuff, this has that, but more so. Um, if you like na- the narrative of um, Female Trouble, this has even more narrative. This has even more development. This basically has... I just pick up on something you said earlier about the sort of jovialness of the first two films. This has the jovialness, but also has a serious point to make. Mm. And that's what I like about it. Okay. Um, you, you can never get bored watching this every, like, that's why I wanted to watch it again today with you. <laughs> now you've watched it three times in two yeah. weeks, but um, you still seem to have enjoyed it. Um, there's so much happening in this film, so you can enjoy it just for sitting down and, and having a good time. But it's, it's got a serious point to make about class and about authority, which the other films don't. Even later ones don't. 
you know, the more mainstream ones. This mm. is him going, you know, he's got a point. He's got a point to make with this, um, but it's not um, pretentious and up its ass. It's still a, a jovial John Waters movie at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you've got a well. We're talking about this in terms of all the fucked up stuff that happens in mm-hmm. the film. So we mentioned the yeah. policeman. You've got um, when the when Peggy and Griselda arrive and they're taken to the Queen. They mm-hmm. get force fed cockroaches. Yeah, I mean, obviously this... not real cockroaches, <laughs> but still, that's pretty fucked up. Uh, yeah, lots of nudity in the film. Nudity. But what I like about films like this is nowadays, and we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Everyone has to be pretty in films now. Yeah, like you, there's no kind of. This is going to make me sound very kind of like, I don't know, a certain way. That's not really okay. the point. But it's. I'm not saying not everyone has to be, you know, size six or a size mm-hmm. four, like really young and pretty and stuff. Yeah. Like, it's almost like these films are like a celebration of kind of different body types and stuff like that. Yeah, like so, you know, Edith Massey. No, would she be in this type of role if the film was made today? No, probably not. And, and they and the actors involved, people like Edith, they they know that they're, for lack of a better term, ugly or grotesque or whatever. Mm. Um, but of of all the cult directors out there, who and everyone says cult is all about celebrating the other. Yeah, um, John Waters really celebrates yes. the other. So. Edith um, being this grotesque old lady. He really has fun with that. And she has fun playing that. Mm. Um, Divine, maybe not in this film, but um, in other films, you know, Divine is not exactly, would, would not win RuPaul's Drag Race. It's not a good <laughs> drag act. But that's the point of the drag, his, his drag act. Mm. Um, and yeah, as you say, other characters, um, yeah, that, that celebration of, yeah, you don't have to be perfect. And that's the point. And there's a perfection to the imperfection. No, and Divine has a lot of charisma, yeah. a lot of star power. Yeah. It's like, um, I kind of wonder with, with this is going to make me sound like an old fogey, but I kind of wonder like today where the next like Jack Nicholson mm-hmm. is going to come from. Because Jack Nicholson, right, <laughs> I had this conversation on another show and I was like, no, Jack Nicholson's really hot and this is with a woman. Mm-hmm. But no, the point is, is that Jack Nicholson is probably, all right, if you just looked at Jack Nicholson, he's not a conventionally attractive person, mm-hmm. but he has so much charisma and so much presence. Yeah. And, yeah, Divine has that. And, yeah, Edith Massey has that. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. I mean, yeah, traditionally not a great So you pointed out there's a, like, she flubs a line that they yeah. kept in the film. But it doesn't matter, really. Yeah. Um, touches that we liked in the film. Um, so, obviously, there's the, the portraits in the castle, the Queen's castle. Absolutely love Amazing. the portraits. You've got Charles Manson, yep. Hitler, and Idi Amin. And uh, weird little, Idi Amin, yeah. Weird little discussion. <laughs> Idi Amin... Perhaps they thought Idi Amin was going to be... Because that, that shows the age of the film. That shows yeah. the time the film was made. Because Idi Amin, just a little boring dictator bit here, he wasn't in power for that long. <laughs> okay? He's not like Gaddafi, who was in power for like 40 years. There'll be people who probably don't know, who will watch this now, probably don't know who that is. Yeah. But it just goes to show that it, he's he's very topical. And uh, to, to ha- go from Hitler and Charles Manson and include Idi Amin in that. Yeah, I mean, if they'd done it 20 years later, they'd have put Saddam Hussein in yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Or like the Shah of Iran. <laughs> Actually, that's probably a little bit more cult. Or um, who's a dude from like uh, Southeast Asia? 
the really bad dictator who Are we killed those. Pol Pot? Yeah, Pol yeah. Pot. That's <laughs> the of, really yeah. bad. This is my area. <laughs> this really is my area. Dictator. Dictators, you know. <laughs> of course, you're my, my history buff. <laughs> yeah, I'm just... That's it. Um, yeah, lots of music. He just generally, as I mentioned, sort of in mm-hmm. the film. So you've got um, various sex scenes that are no way titillating whatsoever. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's titillating. the point. Like so, so the maid that you know. Again, talking about body types and not mm. conventional. Yeah, let's show the maid naked. She's this larger, plus-size woman, for lack of... Yeah. I don't want to use offensive terms, but, you but know, no, that's plus-size. And, plus and that, is done, that is done to make you squirm a little bit and be mm. uncomfortable. And like male nudity, I, f- I think films from this period that have a lot of male nudity, it can only be to, like, make people uncomfortable. To make people uncomfortable, but... At, it's a, it's a weird combination of... It's not just make you uncomfortable in a human centipede or Serbian film way. It's make you uncomfortable but make you giggle at the same time. It's very pantomime, immature at the same time it's as like being grotesque. When we watched like Gestapo's Last Orgy yeah. or like Salon Kitty, which is, again, that scene is kind of taken from Salon Kitty as well. You've got all these naked men and mm-hmm. naked women like in the gymnasium. It's like a similar thing to that. Yeah. Is that... It, is no way that you would find anything like that titillating, but yeah, yeah, and the naked bo- volleyball stuff as well. Oh, yeah, the nudist colony. Lots of weird touches, like in um, there's a scene that takes place in like it, I don't know if it's meant to be like some kind of bar. Yeah, I don't know how they would set up a bar. In there's Waterfield. a bar in Mortville. Everyone's, everyone's going for a drink somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And there's like a, a glory hole, but it's a weird glory hole. It's like a female <laughs> glory hole where there's some random woman sticking her boobs through like these two holes. The, the in glory the wall. hole boobs. I'm like, what? What are you gonna like? What's the, what purpose is that serving? What? Okay. One thing I do love about this film: all these things we're saying. What's good about this film is you have gags within gags. Yeah. So whereas. Pink Flamingos would just be, okay, here's a singing arsehole for two minutes. <laughs> yeah, basically. Gag over, move on. His uh, Divine, eating some shit. Okay, gag done, move on. This will have gags within gags. So you have the wrestling match, for example, with the weird, uh, she's wearing the costume that's like a weird tooth vagina or or like a, you know, the big slash she's wearing yeah. down the front. Um, so that's a gag in itself. But then she rips the eye out and steps on the eye. So there's multiple things happening in the wrestling scene. And um, oh, I'm trying to think of other ones. You have well, there's the the main scene. I suppose we might as well yeah. get to it now. So one of the main characters in the film basically gets a sex change. Perfect example. Yeah, yeah. So he gets a sex change, comes back uh, presenting to her lover. Look, I've had this sex change. I have a penis now. You you yeah. like men, so I you know want for I'd get this sex change with our, mm-hmm. our lottery money that we won. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Which go that thousand pounds goes a thousand dollars goes a long way. Well, yeah, God, yeah, inflation's a bitch, isn't but it? You've got, you've got the, you've got the joke about the sex change, so that she cuts the dick off. Yeah, then and then the dick's fed to the dog, and this is all like boom, boom, boom. Yeah, you know, it's like the Simpsons, classic Simpsons, <laughs> layers upon layers, layers upon layers, upon layers. gags, gags within gags. No, I, I I agree with that. I agree totally with that. Yeah, um, one of the things I was going to say in terms of how the film is structured. What I like about this film, compared Mm -hmm. to pretty much every other film of John Waters that I've seen, Mm -hmm. even including Female Trouble, is there's clear, sort of free, clear acts in this film. And they're all different from each other as well, which I think is cool. So you've got the first act, 
which is uh, Peggy and her maid mm-hmm. basically kill kill her husband and then they escape and then they get yeah. stopped by a policeman. That's Act 1. Act 2, they arrive in Mortville and they're still kind of the main characters. So they're kind of the the, the who the audience, I guess, has the closest kind of association yeah. with. And they're with all these kind of trashy people, these horrible people, mm-hmm. and they meet the Queen... Etc. Yeah, all this stuff, and then you've got backwards day, which just reminded me of Freddie got fingered with backwards, backwards man, backwards, backwards, backwards man. man. Yeah, that's Maybe all that reminded me of. By, you know. <laughs> but then, and I mean, I should have given a warning about spoilers and stuff. But basically, once the maid dies, then the main character shift to the lesbian couple, and yeah. that's the third act. Complete clearly. twist, you know. And Peggy, as we said, because she's sort of a snob immediately she then almost becomes a villain because then she kind of, mm-hmm. well, I want to be, you know, the princess now. And one of John Waters' favourite films is The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. clearly. And you see kind of the look that Peggy then chooses to go with kind of for the rest of the films, but with the black hair yeah. and the black outfit, very, very clearly, you know, Wicked Witch of the West mm-hmm. style with the cauldron and everything. <laughs> so... So yeah, um, very yeah, very clear and, kind of defined yeah. structure. And that final act, the the main characters, it's not it's not just that Peggy becomes a villain. She's hardly in the last act. I would argue it becomes about the lesbian couple. The main actors, the the main people you're supporting, completely change. Mm. The, ma- the maid's killed off, surprise, and then Peggy goes off to the castle, and you don't see it. And then it becomes about that 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 couple and their struggle and their friends' struggle. You know, so it's a completely third, completely different ending to what you know you were led to believe up until that point. Yeah, and most of the actors in the film are women. Yeah, it's a very weirdly, obviously directed by a man now, a gay man, admittedly, mm-hmm. but still, film directed by a man. Basically, yeah, pretty much every character bar one or two, and mm-hmm. they're really minor characters. Yeah. Or women, so it's actually a super kind of. It's a very early example of the kind of film that. Basically, people complain doesn't get made enough today. Yeah, it would definitely pass the Bechdel test <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. There's female empowerment. There's le- lesbian specific empowerment. Yeah. Activism. Yeah, but like you say, the good thing about John Wars is he's not judging these characters for having you know living this these different lifestyles. Yeah. That you know, bear in mind this is the seventies. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, mainstream cinema in particular I mean that people are more accepting of non I guess binary kind of you know lifestyles now but this is very very different there isn't really there's only really one well there's two heterosexual relationships in the film that I can think of so it's Peggy and her husband her husband dies in the first five minutes and the princess with uh, the garbage man garbage man yeah yeah and he's killed off and yeah he dies very, very, very quickly. Herbert, yeah, that's his name. And and Great I guess name. you could say the Queen has multiple lovers. The entire male police force. Yeah, <laughs> she just uses as sex objects. <laughs> yeah, mm. it's very, very, very bizarre. One thing I was going to ask you, I suppose it's a good, good time to to ask. I guess um, if you had never seen a John Waters film before, yes, is this a good one to do for that purpose or? Is it? Are there better choices? Should we say? I would say, yeah. This is this is the best example uh, for the reasons I mentioned before about um, it being the best of both worlds in terms of narrative and um, shock tactics. Uh, it's good for that reason. Um, the it's 
I would say John Waters really has two parts of his career. Mm. There's the early trash period of which this comes under, and then there's the mainstream ones. I would really be tempted to say you need to watch perhaps two. One being from the early trash period, which would be this film, Desperate Living, and then perhaps from the mainstream period, I would say Cry Baby. Um, mm. I know everyone tends to go for Hairspray, but I personally would say go with Cry Baby. That's just me. Depends if you're a fan yeah. of like musicals or not. Yeah, if you want, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just try a musical. Um, <laughs> but if you had to really narrow it down, um, it it would be this one. It would be this one. I know Pink Flamingos is the one everyone puts on the pedestal, mm. but I would say this one. Uh, if Pink Flamingos didn't have the dog shit thing, <laughs> I think everyone would be talking about this film instead of Pink Flamingos. Yeah, yeah. In terms of kind of like, oh my god, this really obscene film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, not that there is other stuff other than the dog shit. Yeah. Least, egg eating and there's the bits with the chickens <laughs> yeah. and the singing arsehole. And, but even the chicken yeah. thing isn't the first time a chicken gets killed in a John Waters film. And didn't mm. the chicken get killed at the beginning of, um, is it Multiple Maniacs? Right? Yeah, it's one of them. Yeah. yeah, it's one of his early films. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I would say, I mean, in my opinion, yeah, I don't think Pink Flamingos. If, if you're trying to get into John Waters generally, yeah, I mean, obviously you have to watch mm-hmm. it, but I wouldn't watch it as the first thing yeah. you ever see, because then you're like, "Fuck's this!" <laughs> and as you said, his 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 budget grows with each passing yeah. film, and his um, let's I don't want to say his talents, but let's say his directing ability well, is yeah, very he gets more the, experience. Yeah, by the yeah. yeah, he gets more experience. So by the time you get to this film, it's full blown John Waters with all his bells, whistles, and talents, and it's before he goes mainstream. So it's kind of like the last of the trash. It's and uh, and the best of the trash as well. It's like if you're comparing Limp Biscuit, you know, three dollar bill <laughs> y'all to yeah. like, you know, chocolate starfish. Yeah, that's a very good analogy, <laughs> you know. That's a very good analogy. And I'm sure John Waters would approve of throwing Limp Biscuit in there. He loves trash. Uh on that note, um as a date movie, Desperate Living, is it would you say it's a good date movie or a bad date movie? Oh bloody hell. Um that's a because this is one of the harder ones. Yeah. Right. I would say Pink Flamingo is a definite bad date movie. Do not watch Pink Flamingo as no. a first date. Or even a fourth date. <laughs> yeah. Um, multiple main X as well. Again, more because of the style. Yeah. But that's a definite bad date movie. I would say yes, in the same way that Holy Mountain, when we discuss Holy Mountain, so much happens in this that with the right person, you could have a jolly good time just <laughs> cackling all the way through. If you're a proper cinephile, analytical person, again, you could enjoy this as well. But I would say if you were going on a first date with somebody who was a cinephile, probably not. But somebody who likes um, uh, exploitation cinema would probably enjoy this. Yeah, I think as long as they kind of knew what they were getting themselves yeah. into, you could. Probably, I, I agree. Like if it's someone who's you know at least knows a little bit about old films, or at least knows okay, it's not going to be like super super polished. Yeah. You're not getting like a multi million dollar budget yeah. here. It's the same with music, in a way, mm-hmm. in that. It, when you listen to music, it's like listening to like you know a polished kind of studio production. Yeah, we've spent lots and lots of time on it, and it's really tight and it's you know super clean compared to like a de- a demo where it's just you know 
band in a garage, one mic, fuzzy as shit, <laughs> basically. It's like that, essentially. As long as you kind of know what you're getting into and you're in the right headspace, it's fine. With the wrong person, this could go very badly. Yeah. But also, I would, I, I would say with this film, there's very much, I sort of said it before, there's a punk aesthetic to this. Oh, yeah. It's it's gritty, it's raw, but it has a, a statement to make, of an activism to it, which I think saves it. If it didn't mm. have that, it would be a terrible date movie. But it's it packs a punch for a reason. And I think that would make it good. Particularly if you're comparing this to, say, your previous date movies. If you're comparing this to your <laughs> Vomit movies or Salo. This is yeah. this is Lady in the Tramp. <laughs> this is... Yeah, this is, this is a this much is a better date much movie. Much better date movie than some of them. <laughs> than uh, Slaughter Vomit Dolls. I, would say. I think... Ed, I, would, <laughs> and so, I haven't like, seen them, but I wanted to bet most movies are. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's kind of like the zero point zero one percent, like in terms of date movies. Like this, people this film into vomit. makes you laugh. Yeah. This film makes you laugh. I think it oh, would yeah. be good. Uh, I'd say your favourite part of the film. We've not mentioned this yet. Was in one of the flashbacks. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. I'll let you say it. Go so on. my favourite bit is uh, they they put a baby in a, in a fridge, yeah. and um, there are far more shocking moments in the film. There are far more um, serious moments. Um, I don't know why, but there's just some... Basically, in a flashback sequence, a mum comes home, the babysitter doesn't know where the baby is, the mum goes into the kitchen, opens the fridge door, and the baby's in the fridge. I find that immensely hilarious. There's something... I know it's going to sound weird, but there's something about kids crying or getting injured, which is hilarious. You ever see a kid fall over in the street? It's a little bit funny. Um, And just the... In my mind, the the idea, not only of the baby being in the fridge is funny, but how that scene would have been... um, set up and shot like John Waters has persuaded some mum to let him borrow their child put it in the fridge close the door and then shoot that scene so that baby's in the fridge even if you shoot it straight away that baby's in there for at least a minute in the dark like we talked about the kids being naked earlier and you wouldn't do that now Mm. I mean that kid isn't I mean this is a low budget film so it's not like that's an actor child that's probably just some kid who is, is now an adult and can probably is probably telling a psychiatrist now about how he's claustrophobic because John Waters locked him in a fridge when he was a baby. <laughs> As someone's actual child. Yeah, and considering all the other crazy stuff that happens in this film, people vomiting, people being given rabies, <laughs> talk of rape and insects being eaten, a baby being put in a fridge is tame. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's very it, true. It, it gets me. It's, it's, Someone cutting off their own somebody cut fake off their penis with a pair of scissors and feeding it to a dog. Some Caligula shit going on. Yeah. Uh, but the baby in the fridge, I don't know, it just makes me chuckle. <laughs> Tickles me. So, not planning on having children anytime soon then? <laughs> nope. Nope. And if I do, they're going in the fridge. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing Emma doesn't listen to these shows. Right. <laughs> um, so, if you, in fact you are interested in owning this on DVD. Um, there's not a lot of information out there on this. Um, Arrow, too busy releasing uh, Hills of Eyes Part 2. What and, the fuck, Arrow? Release some John Waters films. Other kind of random, kind of non-culty cult films that, yeah, not sure kind of why they're releasing them. Anyway, yeah. my point being, I'm rambling away, it's not really f- that freely available on DVD. Um, now, it's released by New Line, mm-hmm. um, which kind of makes sense. Um in a way, I guess, you know, if John Waters is going to work for any kind of major studio, I guess yeah. New Line kind of, you know, it's like Nightmare on Elm Street and kind of people like that kind of studio. Um, so it's available region one through them and 
this Region 2 DVD that we watched just now, that Tom yes. owns, <laughs> it's a... Well, what language is this? Is this Spanish or...? I have no idea. What's it called? Uh, Despa- so Desperate Living is translated as what? L- Viva Desesperamente, or however you say this. But anyway, some, some Mediterranean. It's so <laughs> bizarre and disappointing. I'm pretty sure I've seen in the uh, in the BFI shop... Like multiple maniacs released. Yep. Multiple maniacs is released through Criterion. So. Why? Why the hell isn't this released? <laughs> like, like when people talk about the classic John Waters films, they don't mention multiple maniacs. They mention the Trash trilogy: Pink Flamingos, Female Trouble, Desperate Living. I swear, um, I think Female Trouble might be in English, but my Pink Flamingos and Desperate uh, Desperate Living are like Italian. I mean, you can trust the Italians, can't you, to get this shit out there. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I had to find, I had to track that down on the internet, and then it's not in the film's in English, but obviously the DVD cover and stuff isn't. Yeah, I mean, and his newer stuff is obviously available on DVD. But yeah, yeah any, anything a, from Hairspray onwards, sure. There's a distinct lack of kind of any of his would, kind of yeah. older stuff. I mean, so you've got Multiple Maniacs as Criterion. Polyester is about to be released on Criterion in mm-hmm. the UK. Uh, Criterion in America, they released some of his films. Yeah. And there's definitely like, a market for John Waters' films. Mm. He is He's up there with, like, Lloyd Kaufman and David Lynch when people talk about the classic cult directors. So release his shit, people. God damn it. <laughs> like, the early stuff. That's what we want, you know? Yeah, come on, Arrow. Yeah, get come on, fucking... Arrow. Stop pissing around with Hills of Ice 2. Yeah, get, get your the... fucking act together, dude. Come it, on. it must be a contractual thing. It must be something weird tied up and, yeah. and being... Yep. Production hell or whatever you want to call it. Probably. Oh, Criterion. Criterion are clearly the people who kind of release this shit. So yeah. they're the ones you've got to wait for. Cool. So that's been our uh, voyage into the world of John Waters. Been really fun. Lots um, of fun. I hope you guys have learned a lot about kind of the mm-hmm. the herb of John Waters. John Waters, I mean, he hasn't made any bad films per se, I don't think. No, like, I don't the ones think I've so. seen. So really any of his films are kind of worth what worth watching. And he's an awesome guy. He's hilarious. I got I got the good fortune of seeing what I guess you would call stand up. Um, I went to a, uh, he was doing a sort of publicity thing for a book he had done called Carsick, right. where he, tr- he hitchhiked across America. And it's all his stories of meeting these real life crazy folk who would pick up John Waters. <laughs> and um, he's he's hilarious live. I mean, it's, you know, like how Kevin Smith is more about stand up now than he is directing. Yeah, and John Waters. Weed, yeah. yeah, John Waters is kind of like that. He's an amazing person to listen to his stories. Oh, um, yeah. hilarious man, gentleman. Yeah. yeah. So another reason to get DVDs is his commentaries are amazing. Apparently, yeah. witty motherfucker. <laughs> Have you listened to the commentary on on this one? No, I, I dare not there. to, in case it's all in bloody <laughs> Italian. Um, <laughs> No, I haven't listened to the commentary on Des- on Viva la Desperado, whatever the fuck it is. Yeah, uh, apparently, apparently, you know, his commentaries are awesome. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So on that note, um, I want to thank Tom very, very much for coming on the show. Thank I you so much. I will definitely this- have you on again very soon. This has been one of my favourite ones. Wicked, awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Very much so. And um, yeah, I hope you guys have liked the show today. And um, yeah, we'll uh, see you on the very, very next show for more of the worst date movies ever. Thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter and suggest movies for me to review at Worst Date Movies. And don't forget to click subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now to never miss any future episodes of Worst Date Movies ever.